Hello and welcome to Asia in Depth. I'm Matsuki Avenza. In Tashani Doshi's small days and nights, the unhappily married, half Indian, half Italian Grace leaves the U.S. and returns to her childhood home in South India to cremate her mother. There, she discovers that she has a sister, four years older and never spoken of. And so Grace seeks to remake a life caring for her sister on the isolated wild beaches of Tamil Nadu. The novel is the second by Doshi, who is also an accomplished poet, and it has drawn acclaim for both story and prose. It's a big novel masquerading as a small one, says the author Salman Rushdie. He notes that the novel crosses the world and tackles major subjects, but never strays from an intimate scale. In today's episode, we're going to bring you a conversation between Doshi and Rushdie, taken from the Asia Society New York stage. But first, we're going to begin with Tashani Doshi reading an excerpt of Small Days and Nights. So the book is called Small Days and Nights, and it's largely set in South India, in Tamil Nadu, which is where I live too, in a small village called Paramankeni. But today, uh, it, it also scatters around in different places. And I thought maybe I would read a small section of the book that is set in America, in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina. So this is a, a small scene, um, which is uh, the protagonist, Grace, who is going along with her best friend, an Ethiopian girl called Misrak, who is going to have um, a marriage uh, in order to get a green card. So it's a kind of fake marriage. Okay. There was a spring day in Charlotte, 2002, and I think it's possibly when I was happiest. The sky was wide and bright, the air tripping with the lightness of small birds. Misrak and I are driving to the courthouse. She's wearing a white column dress bought on the cheap, a silver tiara set back in her curls, a netted veil. She's smoking, elbow propped out of the window, and we're laughing because it is all a moving picture story and we are the protagonists. On the way there, Misrak screeches, Fuck, I forgot to get rings. What rings? Rings, rings, we need rings to get married. We detour to Walmart and Misrak leads the way, marching giraffe-like on satin platform shoes, veils streaming behind her. Jewelry? She barks at one of the name-tagged employees. Where can I get jewelry? We follow each other down the aisles. I am in a magenta Ethiopian dress that has been shunted around for different weddings. The fabric scratches against my knees. But I stride as if I'm the kind of woman who can withstand any kind of inconvenience. At the jewelry counter, Misrak says, Give me the cheapest ring you have. I need two of them. The man at the counter smiles and says, You have a happy life now, you hear? As we turn away from him. At the courthouse, the boy Misrak will marry, a baby, is hunched over a cigarette, wearing ivory silk pants and kameez. You look good, Misrak says. I bet you didn't think to get rings, you bastard. Blake, this is Grace's boyfriend, is there too. And it is a moment in our history when I'm still in love with the solidness of him. I stand next to him and he whispers, this will be us soon, but we'll do it differently, of course. Misrak's boss, Patty, arrives with her husband. They're carrying a fluffy white fabric photo album and a bouquet of white roses. Please, no slips, okay? Misrak says when she sees them walking towards us. I told them it wasn't necessary, but Patty was hung up. She said if my family couldn't come, the least she could do is be here. Can you believe? It is over in minutes. 
We sign our names as witnesses. We take photographs in the sun. It is an afternoon of giddy delight as if we were standing on a high mountain, the oxygen in our lungs clipped and clean. Later, at Applebee's, a baby unbuttons the top of his kameez. Corona's for everyone, he says, and the way he gesticulates, the great girth of him, makes me think that one day he'll make a woman burst with joy. Not Misrak, of course, but someone else. I feel bad, Misrak says, looking at the card that Patty and her husband had placed in the album. They were so earnest, so full of good wishes, but it's also funny, isn't it? We laugh so much the stitches in our sides seem to come undone. To an outsider, we might have appeared like the subjects of a Bruce Weber photograph gone downscale. No Hamptons here, but look at this dewy skin, look at this golden light. That night, as Misrak and I lie across from each other on our mattresses, the dirty gray shag beneath us, she says, They always tell us we need a man. All the old crones at home, they go on and on about how much we need a man. Even my lovely, lovely liberal father says it. He says it will make life acceptable. But what I need is America. And if a fake husband will get me a green card so I can stay, then I'll take him. Five years later, Misrak met Jake at a library meeting. A man of such check shirt regularity, it seemed unthinkable that they could love each other. But within weeks, they fitted parts of themselves into each other's voids, voids they didn't know they had. There was a speedy divorce from Abebe who laughed loudly when he heard the news. My, my wife is in love with an American man, he chortled, and I am so happy. There was another trip to the courthouse, subdued, nervy. I yawned through the whole thing. Don't worry about me, Misrak said, crushing me against her. I'm not going to change a bit. When I think of weddings now, all the waste and propaganda, I prefer to remember that fake spring union of Misrak and a baby. We understood that the dangers of hours and hours of cohabitation would never touch these two, and as such they were gleaming like the afternoon itself. We knew as well that our own futures were bound to be different. About romance and companionship we knew little, but watching those two commit themselves felt honorable. The, the way marriage was intended to be, a transaction devoid of the complications of love. Thank you. All right. Well, happy publication day. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it strikes me that what you've got here is a, is a big novel masquerading as a small one. <laughs> that, <laughs> that it seems to be intimate and small scale, but actually it's, it crosses an enormous amount of the world. Mm -hmm. um, and it takes in very big subjects, and, and, uh, and that subject, the subject of not needing a man, mm -hmm. is, is somewhere close to the heart of it. You know? um, and so let me just ask, start off at the beginning, where do you, given that this book has sections in Charlotte, sections in Chennai, Madras, uh, and in this village by the sea, which mm -hmm. is more or less where you live, mm -hmm. you know, and, and um, 
Cody Canal yeah. and Venice mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and some, some other places. You know. um, just talk about the starting point of the book. Where, where in all this did, it, did you find it, the book? I wanted to write a small story, kind of claustrophobic, about a woman who finds out that she has a sister, um, a woman who didn't want to have children, who wasn't interested in family, who who inherits somehow this burden, um, but decides morally that it's the right thing to do. And uh, geographically, all these places are very autobiographical for me because Venice, Charlotte, uh, Madras, this village of Parmankeni, these are the places that I've inhabited in my life. And somehow for me, um, when I'm writing, I always return, Mm. well, Madras is the, the sort of focus point that I keep going back to whether or not I like it. But um, I think that of um, writing the story and grounding it in these places, uh, but particularly that village, was was a way to just, um, yeah, tell this, this very small story of a woman who's kind of struggling with the choices that she makes. So it was just that these were places that you could relax into, that you knew them. And yeah. so to put the story there was... Yeah, and and also, you know, I mean, the title of the book, Small Days and Nights, it comes from this James Salter, um, you know, quote from his book, A Sport and a Pastime, about how the knowledge of a country we get from the small towns. And because I'd been living in this small village in South India for eight years, I, and I, you know, when I, when I came to America, I didn't come to New York, I went to Charlotte. And so my life, my whole life, I keep getting shoved to smaller places. And I thought, well, is there a story here that is as important or that can also tell a larger story of nation, of country? Um, because I think a lot of the times we look to literature from the big centers, you know? And I felt like actually, even in the small village, even in the small town, even in, you know, the little rinky-dink place, yeah. there is a story to be told. <coughs> Not that Venice is a rinky-dink no, place. No, but, <laughs> but, but your story links worlds, doesn't yes. it? It joins worlds yeah. together. Um, interesting about the, your choice of the quote from Sport and a Pastime, because, I mean, that's a book that's almost entirely about sex. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and your book is only in a secondary way about sex. <laughs> Um, I mean, there's not a whole lot of sex in it. No. You know? um, small amount. There's, there's a small amount, yeah. yeah. Um, which is probably the right amount. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're Jim Salter. Yeah. Um, but it's a, it is a book about passion and the lack of it, you know? And, yeah. and uh, your character, for a lot of the book, is kind of quite emotionally withdrawn. Yeah. You know, um, and uh, hard for her in a way to be emotionally connected to people. Yeah. Um, and then she has the sister. The sister has Down syndrome, and and who she looks after and becomes in a way like a, she becomes almost like a parent to the sister. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and that relationship is at the heart of the book. Mm-hmm. And you want to just say something about that in terms of the the fact that in a way they're both for different reasons very withdrawn people, you yeah. know, um, both, both the 
the, the sister and the, and the kind of daughter slash sister. Right, yeah. yeah. That was definitely sort of a, that sense of that relationship of trying to write. I'm very interested in, in writing about sister relationships somehow. And um, I think in this case uh, that almost the sort of writing about what it means to be a caregiver but without sentimentalizing the experience and what it actually requires, the day-to-day -day, um, accretion of, you know, um, caring for someone. I wanted to capture that. But I also wanted to put it in this very isolating place. Mm -hmm. So you don't have just the relationship uh, which strains um, and where, you know, the language level is, you, you know, she's, Grace can't even, there's very little to, to speak mm -hmm. because the, the housekeeper speaks Tamil, her Tamil is not so good, and then her sister doesn't speak much. Then she has the dogs and that's it, you yes. know. Um, and so you have this sort of lockdown in communication, but there's also this sense of the landscape being at the same time very beautiful, but also menacing. And I really wanted the landscape to play an important part of the book, yeah. that sense of how something very beautiful and almost paradise can turn um, and become dangerous all of a sudden. That sense of submerged danger, mm -hmm. you know, is, is, is there in the book until it stops being submerged, until it emerges. Now, um, and is very powerful, I think. But I mean, now you live in something very like this place. I mean, mm -hmm. you don't live as she does, you know, mm -hmm. alone and with a, with somebody that you, yeah. that is incompetent almost, you know. Mm -hmm. But do you, have you felt that about it? I mean, is that something that you feel about living in the village by the sea in, in Tamil Nadu or, or, or not? It is. Um, I think the idea for the book came because I I lived there with my husband and I thought, well, what if he wasn't here? Would I be able to live here alone as a woman? Well, first of all, there's the thing of being alone and then losing the plot because you have nobody to talk to, which is separate. Mm. But I think the question in the Indian context was also the question of if you're not in the city where you have a sense of safety in having people around you and community, then what would it be like to actually be a woman living out there where there is not that many people? And so then the threat of danger is high. And, you know, a lot of it, I mean, India is, is considered a dangerous place for women. It's mm -hmm. high in the statistics and all of that. Um, and even though the South doesn't have that sense of menace in the way that, say, when I go to Delhi, yeah. I think women feel it everywhere, that sense of, just checking your surrounding, seeing what's behind. You know, it's just built into us somehow, and I think it gets heightened when there's not that many people yeah. around because suddenly from out of the blue, someone will come, and you will perceive it as a threat. Yeah. So the idea of the imagined fear and the real fear was also something I was playing with. The specific danger that the book talks about has to do with development. Yeah. It has to do with uh, local developers wanting to buy land, and, and force people off it, yeah. you know, and and sending um, sending bully boys, thugs, round to to encourage people to leave. Yeah, is that something that's going on in your neighborhood? Or yeah, I mean, it's been happening all down the coast, and I think India is sort of one of the top five countries where land grabbing has happened, and where you have this huge shift of resources from 
rural to urban because of this land grab, you know? And so I haven't experienced that myself, but that kind of, those stories are happening all along that coast. What I think is very, I mean, clever in the book is that when the violence does arrive, it doesn't arrive at her door, it arrives at somebody else's door. You know, and, and so, uh, so it's deflected a little bit, but you still feel it. Yeah. You know, um, and uh, those characters, I think, the the the, the village headman that mm-hmm. she thinks of, in a way, as a safe place that he, she could go to him, and as long as she's okay with him, that things will be okay. Yeah. And the the destruction of that safety is is a very powerful moment in which you realize that there isn't a safe place. Mm. You know. Um, but you, you were saying about not being in the city. I mean, there, there, there's a section of the book that's, that deals with, with her social life in Madras. And mm-hmm. I, you say Madras, not Chennai. I say <laughs> Bombay, not Mumbai. And <laughs> these things are important. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, but you talk about, she at one point talks about, I forget that the phrase is, collecting a tribe. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, that's to say, making a family around her, you know, um, and that's a part of the book that's where she finds a kind of kind of home, mm-hmm. but it can't go with her to to where she lives, mm-hmm. you know. Um, those characters, I mean, they're they're very sweet characters, and some of them are lampooned and critic and made fun of, and some of them not, but. But it, it's a very believable, understandable Indian urban middle class world. You know? yeah. And yet she makes this very big decision to not be in it. Yeah. You know? um, and I just want you to talk a little bit about isolation, about that, you know, about having mm. a character who is so isolated. Because also that starts earlier in her life with the, you know, her, her, not only as her mother died, but her mother kept very big secrets from her. Yeah. You know, and, and, and her father is an absentee father yeah. you know, in, in Italy. Yeah. And so that's a very big part of who she is. Yeah. I mean, this whole sense of um, trying to find a community, I think, is a big part of the book because in a way I'm really attacking the idea of the family, which I think in India is, and I think in other places too, can be such an oppressive institution, and yet it's held up as the primary institution where you're supposed to get everything. And um, I come from a really nice family, actually, very supportive people. But I think that when you live in, um, I think when you live in a place where uh, you see what families actually do to each other, and I'm married to an Italian, and it, it, it you know, uh, the mafia kills way less people than fa- Italian families kill each other. So, I mean, the statistics are really high of the damage and, and violence. And, and you think, well, is it possible then to explore other relationships of love and, and, and coming together that are not DNA-based? And I know at this point in my life that particularly with women, and this is a book really about women in a large way, that they're finding their communities in different ways. And it's really about where do you get your people and how do you find them and how do you create the new family? Because the old family doesn't always work. The old system of the mother, father, you know, it's sort of breaking down in a way. And so partly the book is trying to examine the difficulty and the struggle of that 
but also pushing for saying, what are these alternative structures that may be available to us? Yeah. What, 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 what Goethe called elective affinities, yeah. the, the people you choose, yeah. uh, rather than the people who are given to you. Exactly. Um, and you know, and, and also the idea of, I think, the other thing which is important is the sense of um, how much we place in our children and the expectations we have of them. And um, because there is a sister in this book with Down syndrome and, and, and Grace, who's quite an imperfect protagonist and who's not always successful in her uh, caregiving um, and who slips up, there's also this question of, of where are we going with this idea of the perfect human being, the perfect baby, the Petri dish designer baby, and blah, blah, blah. Because I think it's very hubristic, I think, of people to imagine that you can create this super person because I feel that at some point we will fall short. Mm. And that is part of the underlying nature of the book. So the imperfection of, of her character... What yeah. would you see as being the imperfection of her character? I think she's someone who struggles with the idea of freedom versus duty. She feels morally obliged to look after the sister, but she's not exactly brimming over with love. So she mm. wants to go into the city and get drunk with her friends and just be free of that, that responsibility. But at the same time, she doesn't exactly make all the required proper you know, arrangements. arrangements. Mm -hmm. And so she, and then she loses her temper. And so she falls short. But I think that's also from what I understand with people who have been in caregiving situations, that there will be a moment when you fall short. And that is human. It's human um, to, to sort of uh, want to care for another human being as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the other thing in the book is how do we care for the people in our society who, who cannot take care of themselves? We're going to take a short break and talk about Asia Society's YouTube channel, which now has more than 150,000 subscribers. Hundreds of our public programs each year are recorded and published on YouTube, and there's a lot more. You can watch videos on a huge range of topics, from the latest on the coronavirus, to the situation in Iran, to uplifting dance and music performances. So, whether you live near Asia Society or not, please be sure to subscribe at youtube.com slash asiasociety. That's youtube.com slash asiasociety. And now let's get back to Tashani Doshi and Salman Rushdie. It's interesting. One of the, I saw when the book came out in England, you, you I'm sure saw this, there was this review in The Guardian which described the book, I mean, it's a very positive review, but it describes the book as a howl of hatred and grief. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You want to talk about that? <laughs> um, yeah, sure. Um, was it something to do with Edvard Munch, the, the, the scream? It's, 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 the, it's the big headline. <laughs> um, no, but about the anger in the book. You know, I about, think there's uh, anger. I think there's anger, and I think there's been anger in my work uh, for these, this book and my, my collection of poems, Girls Are Coming Out of the Woods. And I think uh, largely it has to do with um, being in India these last 10 years and going with my body as a woman navigating through this space and feeling really a kind of fury and, and anger at the fact that there's just so much violence, for one, 
um, that we have to navigate and and just so much repression and so many things that you're trying to, um, to you know not be bombarded and squashed down by and at the same time I would say that the story of women in India is such a one for rejoicing because it's just there's so much happening and so much that Indian women are doing so it's this weird juxtaposition of on one level, these horrible statistics and newspaper articles, which just keep coming, and at the other end, um, the the sort of strong resilience and and, and well, I think they're, they're, they're two sides of the same thing, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, it's, it seems to me that there is more than one generation now of women in India who are very determined to have their own lives and to not not to have their lives dictated to them and imposed on them. You know, and yeah. and and these these. Young students are showing us, yeah. you know, um, how, how, to what lengths they will go to, you know, to have that. And it seems to me that there is a kind of Indian male response to that, which, of which violence towards women is the manifestation. That's to say, it's to try and stop women from having that freedom. Yes. You know, that, that the rape being used as, as an instrument of control. Yeah, you know, and and so I think the two things are, well, the two sides of the same thing. Absolutely, and and so I think that that rage or that sense of despair comes from, and not you know if you if you want to even get into uh, government and to men in power and all of that, there's this sense of living with this huge system of patriarchy around you, and then here you are trying to navigate your way, and so I think that my rage is a quiet one. And it surprised me as well because I didn't necessarily think read. of myself as. It doesn't you know. read like a furious rant. No, you know, no, it, it, no. It, it, if the anger is there, it's it's under the surface of things yes. and bursts out every so often. Yeah. You know, but it's not like it's not a scream. No, you know, it's not no. like Ginsburg's howl. You no, know? I mean, it's, you know, it's it's. Uh, um, but the subject of anger, I think, is is very important because there is. A lot to be angry about, yeah. You know, and I mean, there's one moment. I mean, a line that kind of stopped me actually. It's quite late in the book. It's after the the act of violence takes place. Mm -hmm. You know, and and characters say to each other, "Hang on, I'm going to make sure I don't misquote this because uh, the line I want you to talk about." Uh, Two hundred and forty. Yeah, she says that the central character, talking about her father, she says, Papi was right, I say, we're living with savages. Mm. Right. So you're describing, or she's describing, the Indians amongst whom she lives by this very, very harsh word. Right? And it seemed to me that's the, the, it's the angriest line in the book. Yeah. You know, and um, you want to just expand that a bit? Yeah, I mean, the father is a bit of a racist and uh, is not one of those happy foreigners to be in India. He's somebody who doesn't really ever get it, and, and then he eventually goes back. And I, I really, I think that my first novel, I was so in love with all of my characters, maybe too much so, that when I wrote this one, I wanted to have, I guess, a little bit more complicated um, and less lovable characters, but I still want to talk about the idea of love and, and how it's possible um, and 
you know, how we are all deeply flawed. And this moment after this this huge act of violence, which we can talk about, I don't, I don't think it's a we don't spoiler. Want to, it's not a spoiler, no. <laughs> no. no. There's an incident where, um, which is true, it, 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 it was in a news story, and there's a village which was down the coast from me where they, they killed 400 dogs. Um, because what happens is that the stray dog population, they just sort of breed and it gets to be a little out of control and then they just cull them, you know? And this is their way of population control. And sometimes they just give them cyanide and then they bury the dogs in the water, you know, in the, in the ground and then goes into the water table. So it's a very gruesome, horrific thing. And um, I think that that's also something you come across in India a lot. You... Yeah, you talk about a rape, and it's not just a rape. It's like burnt and then smashed on the head. And, you know, it's, it's, it's gone to such a level of brutality and savagery. That's mm. what it is. Mm. And so then when you come confronted with that, you think, why does it have to be like that? Do you know? Uh, we are violent as a species, and that's a fact. But this kind of, um, this kind of violence is really... What do you do with it? How do you how do you uh, how do you live amongst that without losing your sense of humanity as well? Do you know? And so that's why that line came because I think there are moments when you feel it's too much. Mm. But know? she doesn't run away. No. Uh, I mean, she stays. Yeah. Um, and, and that's very interesting because she doesn't really even, as far as I can tell, think of running away. You know, she she just stays because is that because that's where she has found her place. I mean, the, a lot of the book is about what is your place. Yeah. You know, about what, what yeah. do you have a place? If so, where is it? Yeah. And is that because you felt that by then in, in the book, which is very late in the book, that she'd found her place? Yeah, I think that the idea of place and belonging is so important uh, to the book and, and to me as a writer, because everything that I've ever done has been an exploration of that, you know. And partly it's because I think I have a slight chip on my shoulder about it. Um, so I was in an Uber pool yesterday oh, yeah. going to Brooklyn. Um, and there was this, I got in the car, the guy next to me starts complaining. He's like, oh, starts huffing and puffing. And then the guy's stopping to pick up another person. And he says, no, don't pick up anyone else. And then, you know, you think, what's wrong? So I'm not making eye contact at this point. And then a phone call comes and um, he says, you know, I'm in a car. The Uber driver keeps picking people up. And I was like, this is Uber pool. That's what they do, you know. Um, anyway, and then he says, um, you know, uh, don't mind me asking out of curiosity, but, you know, where did you grow up? So I said, I grew up in India. Oh, okay. Uh, which part of India? Madras. I am a computer software engineer. So, you know, as you can imagine, I know lots of Indians. Great. Good. Good for you. And then, so it goes, and then finally he says, you know, but um, you, are, uh, you are only half Indian. No offense, but you must be half something else. Wow. Okay, so I get this a lot. Mm. And it turns out that it's true. It's true. I am half Indian. <laughs> um, I live, but I live in India. I yes. write about India. But I think that part of my also anger and irritation is that my whole life I have been told, oh, you're only half Indian. This happens just, uh. and it's not, it's not offensive. It's to do with what we expect of how somebody might look, yeah. you know. Um, but you well, don't I get expect asked that if I'm Indian at all. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm and, not even half Indian. Yeah. 
hundred <laughs> percent. So, so I think this sense of expectation of what what must a person sound like, what must a person look like, and you think this is one point two billion people, and you have one idea yeah, of exactly. what an Indian person yeah. looks like and sounds yeah. like. We look like everything. Yeah, and so that yeah. to me was something that I really wanted to 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 explore the sense of actually. Um, here in the book, Grace is a very exotic protagonist. She's half Italian and half Indian. But actually, an, a person coming from Assam to Delhi is going to feel like an outsider. A person going from Bangalore to Uttar Pradesh is going to feel yeah. but because of the way they look, the way that they don't speak the, the same language. And all of this sense of being outsidered is a very Indian experience. Mm -hmm. A lot of Indians are on the move and they are experiencing this all the time. And so that's what I want to write about, this sense of actually being in your country and being made to feel that this is not your place. Mm -hmm. You are this is not your you know, land, you don't belong here, you are from somewhere else. And, and now this debate is of course huge with, with what's happening with the Citizenship Act in yeah. India and stuff. So it's really, um, it's really a big issue for me. So in the novel, there are these various places on which she, in which she has some sort of foothold, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's Italy or Charlotte. I mean, Charlotte, I think, is, a, is more like a moment in her past yeah. than, than in her present. Yes. You know? um, and, in the way that her marriage to the, to, what's his name? Blake. Blake. Mm -hmm. um, is not, I mean, there's one scene where it enters the present moment of the book, but otherwise mm. it's mostly in the past. In the same way as in India, the Indian sections, there's a very evocative childhood passages mm. in Kodekanar. Mm. And, and when they return to the hill station, to the house where she was a child, it's a wreck. Um, I mean, it would be easy to say that that was a metaphor, <laughs> you know, that the place where you were a child is now a wreck, you know, um, and you and you can't go back because it's not there to go back to. Yeah. You know, um, and that's some of what she feels, right? Because because of how her family, her parents have been. Yeah. Um, the secretiveness of the mother because she, the mother hides from her the fact that there is this other daughter, yeah. you know, um, and disappears every, once for one day a week mm. uh, without explanation to, to go to visit, as we later discover, to go to visit yeah. the, the, the other daughter. But for most of her childhood, she has this mother who disappears one day a week. Yeah. You know, and, and it's never discussed and it's never explained. Yeah. You know, um, so that sense of the that the relationship with the mother is problematic in some way, you know, is, is, is very central to the book. And, and at the, later in the book, when there's the letter from the mother. Yeah. Do you feel that that's, that that's a healing moment or not really? I wasn't, I wasn't certain how to, I mean, like when, she, when the mother writes from beyond the grave yeah. and says, I'm sorry, but this is what I was doing and this is why I was doing it. Yeah. I just, I think um, I... I feel a lot that our parents, uh, who are people that we think we know or are meant to be very close to, are in some ways can be sometimes strangers to us and that we don't know an awful lot about them. And I think in the book I wanted to explore that sense of how actually your parents can keep secrets from you, very large secrets. Um, and, and in this case it is you know a huge secret. Um, 
but but that 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 sense of I say in the in the book I say something about you know you never think that your parents would be more deceptive than you are, um, and of course they are. Yes. <laughs> you know I think we all carry secrets, and and there are just sort of certain patterns that come into families that once they're there it's very difficult to break. Mm. So it's like oh we decided not to tell her, and now I guess it's we're never late. it's too late yeah. you know. And 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 that part of the story actually, I I was I was sort of reading about Arthur Miller and Inga Marath and how they had a son Daniel with Down syndrome who they institutionalized and and how Arthur Miller never acknowledged him, never really visited him or anything, and this was in the 60s and I I thought that was such an interesting, um, the interesting sense of how you know. I also say here, like she thinks, well, you had a you had a kid didn't work out the way you wanted. Then you decided to have another kid, so mm. she's really angry also at mm. the parents mm. to to think that then they can just go again and try for the child that's normal, so yeah. to speak. You know. Yeah. So yeah, it's not a healing moment. No. No, they fuck you up, your mom and dad. They do. You know, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> uh, Larkin. Not, they may not mean to, but they do. But they do. They give you all the faults they had, and then some extra just for you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Larkin, of course, never had children, so um, <laughs> never mind Philip Larkin. Um, talking of Philip Larkin, you're also a poet. Yeah. You had this book come out, was it a year ago, just over a year ago? Two years, Two yeah. years ago, Girls Are Coming Out of the Woods, which, which has had a wonderful reception. And uh, I want you to read a poem. Mm -hmm. well, actually, you said you knew it by heart, which yeah. is so impressive. Um, <laughs> So she's going to recite a poem, but I wanted to ask, because I know, for example, a uh, uh, Brazilian writer, Chico Buarque, who is a wonderful songwriter mm. and also a wonderful novelist, and he says he cannot do both things at the same time. Yeah. So when he's writing a novel, he completely gives up the music. Yeah. Um, and when he's writing songs, he can't begin to think of writing prose fiction. Yeah. Um, is it like that with you? It's either or, or can you be thinking of novels uh, of poetry while you're writing a novel? No, no, no. I think it's absolutely. I mean, I think I can do poetry along with other things um, because there's just an elasticity to poetry, and it allows you to have a bit more room. But a novel is everything. Is everything, and mm. once you commit to being in that tunnel of writing the novel, then you have to stay in the tunnel. You don't suddenly is, think, oh, there's a poem I want to write. No, no, and it's like a switch of everything, a switch of language and scale, and, and, and so even though there might be, you know, I think that, like, I don't know how it is for you, but if, if you see something that's usable, it just gets used gets into, into yeah. whichever form you're yeah. working on, yeah. Yeah. you know, so if I see something, then it will come into the novel, and if I'm writing a poem, then I'll find a way to bring it into the poem. Um, so I'm I mean, always alert. There are one alert, or two writers but, who have amazing gifts of compartmentalization, yeah. you know, who, who, who can do more than one thing at a time. When I remember, I knew Calvino a little bit, and, and in his apartment in Rome, he would have three desks, mm. and he had a different book on each desk you know, um, as a work in progress. And he would decide, you know, today I'll go and write that one. And he could keep them separate, you know, because for me, what happens is they all become the same thing, you know. Um, and no, that's that's annoying. No, so, I, I don't do that. No, no, no. <laughs> it's tough. No. All right. So, no. since we're talking about poetry, do you want to? Sure. Yeah. Recite uh, your poem. Sure. I 
Mm, I'll get up. <laughs> um, so I'll just uh, I'll do the title poem, I guess, since um, it's been a while. Um, and um, this is called Girls Are Coming Out of the Woods. Girls are coming out of the woods, wrapped in cloaks and hoods, carrying iron bars and candles, and a multitude of scars collected on acres of premature grass and city buses, in temples and bars. Girls are coming out of the woods with panties tied around their lips, making such a noise it's impossible to hear. Is the world speaking too? Is it really asking, what does it mean to give someone a proper resting? Girls are coming out of the woods, lifting their broken legs high, leaking secrets from unfastened thighs. All the lies whispered by strangers and swimming coaches and uncles, especially uncles, who said spreading would be light and easy, who put bullets in their chests and fed their pretty faces to fire, who sucked the mud clean off their ribs and decorated their coffins with briar. Girls are coming out of the woods, clearing a ground to scatter their stories. Even those girls found naked in ditches and wells, those forgotten in neglected attics and buried in riverbeds like sediments from a different century. They've crawled their way out from behind the curtains of childhood, the silver-pink weight of their bodies pushing against water, against the sad, feathered tarnish of remembrance. Girls are coming out of the woods, the way birds arrive at morning windows, pecking and humming, until all you can hear is the smash of their minuscule hearts against glass, the bright desperation of sound, bashing, disappearing. Girls are coming out of the woods. They're coming. They're coming. You see, it seems to me that's the angry piece of writing. Yeah. You know, um, that's the anger that's underneath this book. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I worked so. on the two books over a period of six or seven years, but not with my two desks, but only the one desk. And so I would go from the novel to the poems and I would shift in these different periods, but always carrying this kind of, yeah, that underbelly of yeah. some kind of rage, you know? Well, let's, you know, since we've got there to this subject, talk about what's happening a little bit in India yeah. right now. Because as you say, it's become has been for some time now a very dangerous environment for women. Yeah. Um, addition to that, now it's become a very dangerous environment for democracy. You know, it's it's uh, it's it's become violent against all sorts of things that that people like me certainly value a great deal. Yeah. And and against that, there is this extraordinary uprising of the young. Yeah. You know. Um, and 
not people of my generation who sit at home, not people of your generation who make Facebook texts. <laughs> um, but the kids are extraordinary yeah. just now. You know, they, are, they are so brave and, and uh, unafraid, yeah. willing to risk themselves against, against a government that is ruthless you know, and, and is uncaring. Yeah, I mean, the, the pictures, I think, that are coming out are, you know, particularly um, young women and Muslim women as well. I think, like, if you think of Shaheen Bagh, which is a place in South Delhi where women, are, you know, have of all ages, not just young women, but, you know, grandmothers, wives who do their cooking, come back, and they've been there for three weeks or more and, and really um, created this huge sense of energy and anger and protest. It's remarkable. And then you have the young student leaders of JNU, you know, Aishi Ghosh, and you have all these stories. And in all the pictures you see these, and it's, it's women, it's, it's Indian women, and, and that to me, you know, and men also. No, no, the, but, but there the seems children. to be a really, uh, you know, it's half of the population is under the age of 25. That's a large number of young people who are very um, politically motivated in a way that we were talking backstage about yeah. how it feels that it's missed certain generations. And this now seems to be such an exciting moment, I think, in India, despite the fact that we have um, a very authoritarian uh, government trying to pass extremely um, uh, limiting laws on citizenship, you know, uh, and, and, and this sense of, you know, whether you're Muslim or where you've come from and all of this, you know, detention camps and really... Well, it's that assault on the idea of the secular nation. Yeah. You know, that, that, that's beyond Hindu-Muslim. Which you is know, enshrined it, in the Constitution. It is the Constitution and, of India. And, and, and people and, have been reading, you know, passages of the yeah. Constitution and What I all think is that. most, in a way, extraordinary about the rising of the young is mm -hmm. the way in which they're reclaiming the language of the independence struggle. Yeah. You know, um, that in, in a way that the Congress Party, <laughs> bless their hearts, is, is, <laughs> is incapable of now. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and yet these kids are yeah. quoting chapter and verse of the language of the independence struggle and, and reclaiming it. Yeah. You know, saying the country is not this, it was that. It was that. That is what made the country. You know? And that's the most optimistic thing. Yeah. You know, that, that the country in its young people is, is beginning to remember itself. You can say, we are this. We are not this thing that's happening now, you know. And there seemed to have been a time of great historical amnesia where it was just, you know, oh, where did we come from? How did this happen? Yeah. And actually now, as you say, there's this sense of really reclaiming and also reframing a sense of what kind of country do we want to be, you know? Yeah. What kind of, of and, and I think that that's, that's sort of one, uh, you know, something hopeful. No, it is, the, it is the, I mean, the problem is that the forces ranged against them are very unfeeling, you know? I mean, that they, they, um, they, I mean, the government is, is saying, who cares about these demonstrations, we're just going ahead, yeah. you know? And which is what governments say until the momentum gets too great, you know? Um, and, um, we have to see. Yeah. 
Mm -hmm. I mean, in a way, it's impossible to to know yeah. if, if this thing will build, uh, or, or if it does, it can really change the country. Yeah. You know, um, if it doesn't, then that'll be it'll be like the Prague Spring. Mm -hmm. You know, the, 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 this wonderful moment which gets the tanks come in. You know, and 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 stop it. Mm. Uh, so, but I think they all need our support. They need our vocal support. Yeah, you know, um, and um, and bravo for them. I think yeah. you know, and and I think actually, uh, your book is related to that struggle because it's about independence. You know, it's about mm -hmm. it's about a woman who doesn't want to be anybody else's woman. You know, she. Um, and um, even though it's not a polemical book, um, yeah. that's why I'm saying it's a big book masquerading as a small book. <laughs> you know, because all those things are there in it. Yeah. That'll do it for this week's episode of Asia in Depth. To learn more, you can check out our show page at asiasociety.org slash podcast or follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Asia Society. I'm Matt Skiavenza. See you next time. <laughs>